Hello, and welcome to the 40 Drinks Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie McLaughlin. You know, sometime around our 40th birthday, plus or minus, many of us start to feel what I've started calling the ick, like one or many or maybe even most aspects of our lives don't quite fit anymore, and you just don't know what to do about it. I know that was true for me, and I made quite a mess of it if I'm being honest, but having 40 drinks with 40 people over the course of a year helped me escape the influence of that ick. On this podcast, I welcome you to tap into my stories and experience, as well as those of my guests, to help you emerge from your own ick and maybe even avoid some of the mistakes we made along the way. Today, my guest is Sasha Sigmund, whose life shifted completely in the month before his 40th birthday. Hi, Sasha. Thanks for being here with me today. Hi, Stephanie. Thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's my pleasure. You're coming to us today from Europe. Is that correct? Indeed. Indeed. I'm sitting in Brussels, Belgium. Beautiful, beautiful city. I was there in my 20s for a short visit and God, it was so beautiful there. Some of the buildings in one of those main squares are just breathtaking. The historic buildings. Yeah, yeah, indeed. They have some very beautiful old architecture. Yeah, I was living in Ireland at the time, so I wasn't unfamiliar with old architecture. But once we got to Belgium, the architecture was completely different and on such a different scale. And it was really breathtaking. I would love to get back there again someday. You should. There's also good food and beer. Oh, actually, that's right. There is good beer. When I was there, tell me, is this a real thing? I had something called a mazout. Is that a real thing? Yes. <gasps> oh, I'm so I excited. I remembered that. Tell me what it is. Oh, it's one of the thousand kinds of beers that they have. Quite a, okay. Because there's a lot of monasteries here that were yeah. traditionally doing the beers. Okay. And they tried a lot of things. So there are some beer bars in Brussels, for example, where you can try out a couple of hundred of different kinds of beers, and they go from 4% alcohol up to 12% alcohol. Oh so oh there are quite a lot of beers that are relatively strong. Yeah. I'm not a big beer drinker and never have been. And so the week that I was in Belgium, I was drinking something. I thought it was called a mazout, but it was half Coca-Cola and half beer. Is that a thing? That also exists. Quite honestly, I'm not Belgian by origin. I'm German. So I'm okay. coming from a city two hours from here. We have that too in Germany and it's a drink, especially in the summer or for people that don't like to get drunk so quickly because you have to be careful because it's yeah. too hot and stuff. They mix, for example, Coke and beer or lemonade and beer. Yeah. Yeah. So I know lemonade and beer is a shandy, I think is what that's called in Celtic parts of the world, I think. Anyway, I'm trying to remember things from 25-ish years ago, maybe more, 30 years ago. But we're here to talk about your story about turning 40. Why don't we start back a couple of steps and tell me a little bit about your early adulthood and how you got to be in your late 30s, where our story will begin. Sure. As I said, I'm German. I come from a city called Cologne, two hours from Brussels. Europe is smaller, so the distances are a bit different. I'm a single child. My parents, I'm the first one that I went to university. So I'm, I'm really from, let's say, 
very normal background. After my school, I was a bit out of orientation. I wasn't sure what to do. And so I started working in an insurance company for two years, realizing very quickly that's not my piece of cake. So I wanted to study and I finally found something that interested me, which was called European Studies. At the time that we're talking about back in the 90s, the European Union was very hip in certain ways. And I was very much interested in history and culture and languages and all this kind of things. I was fascinated by the idea of different countries cooperating together for the greater good, which, as you will see later in the story, will have some kind of importance. And so I did my studies, three years in Germany, I did a bachelor, and then I studied in France one year and one year in Amsterdam, where I did my master's degree. Then about the early 2000s, where actually I was then going back into work life, working for an NGO in the renewable energy sector organizing conferences, etc. office work for two and a half years again. And well, I have this very restless mind. So I like to travel, as I said, and like languages, cultures. So I applied for a scholarship with a German foundation, which allowed me to go to China for eight months. And so after having been working in this NGO for renewable energies, I decided to go to China on the same topic. Uh, and I did a, a language courses and then an internship in Shanghai for six months in a German renewable energy company. And well, I would have stayed in the sector, but the economy went down and they cut the subsidies for renewable energy. So there was no work in the sector. I came back and due to my studies, a couple of my friends, they ended up in Brussels, where is the headquarter of the European Union, the Commission, the Parliament, etc. Mm -hmm. And one of them told me about a bank that is always looking for people speaking several languages. And uh, as I didn't want to move in with my parents again, I was already in my early 30s. I said, okay, let's try that. And they offered me a job. And so I went to Brussels working finally what's called, it's a rather financial institution. It's not really a bank. It's a bank for banks. Uh, I started in 2008 and in the end, I stayed seven and a half years with them in different kind of positions. And then we are already heading towards the end of my thirties, quite honestly. So, right, right. <laughs> it's a little that... bit what I did. As you can see, it's quite diverse. It is quite diverse. You did a lot of jumping around, which in the 90s, that was really the first generation where it was acceptable to be having jobs for only two or three years and, and then jumping to something else. Because prior to that, it wasn't so common. People stayed with companies for decades. Yeah. 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 So you took this job in the financial industry in Brussels, and you told me it was a real safe job. Yeah, yeah. I mean, financial institutions nearly like a public service in a certain way. So uh, once you're inside, you can move up or around or whatever. And unless you do something really stupid, usually you can stay quite long if you want to. Of course, there's a much bigger social security system in Europe. So you have your salaries and your holiday pay and all these kind of things that are guaranteed. So yeah, it, it was a very safe position. And you were working in compliance. It was a real you know, just plain old job. There doesn't sound like there was a lot. Of, oh, I don't even know how to say this. It was just a nine to five. It wasn't inspiring in any way, right? No, no, at least not for me. I mean, some people are interested in finance. Some people like law. I worked in compliance, which is a very legal area. I have no law degree. So for me, it was okay. I mean, there was an international company that was nice, but content wise, it did not really trigger me. It was sanctions and anti-money laundering and all these kind of things, which yeah. in some way are interesting, but it's nothing I would like to dive in for 20 years. Where these questions of purpose coming up. 
Yes. For a lot of people, the uh, idea of a job that you could go to every day and just do and then go home and you have a steady paycheck and you have your holidays and all of those things, that sounds like wonderful stability to some people. How did it feel to you? I will not complain about money and I will not complain about my holidays, which is nice, but it felt like something is missing. I told you what I've done in the past and it's always this kind of tension between something that is paying my life and gives me security and on the other hand something that excites me that is bigger than me that I can contribute to. So there's the European Union for example or there is renewable energy so all things that are close to me. In compliance I didn't have that feeling it was a nine-to-five job which allowed me to do a lot of things but I was looking outside of the window a lot of times and asking myself, okay, what I'm doing here? Is this what you want to do until you are 65, 67, or even older? And I really felt empty. I felt like I was existing, but I was not living. Mm. What did that feel like to you? How did you know it didn't feel like living? Because I had no, no joy. I went already angry to work on Monday and I went angry to work every morning and I complained all the time about other people usually. And what I did, the tasks did not fulfill me. It didn't give me any pleasure. It feels like I wanted to get rid of them as quickly as possible. So yeah, yeah I feel empty. I think empty is a good word. Yeah. So how long into the seven years was it when you realized that you were joyless and empty and feeling all these things? It came more often. I mean, it started relatively early, but of course, I also changed department because in the beginning, you're trying to make the changes small. You think, oh, maybe it's not the right team, maybe it's not the right content, whatever, and you switch to another team, another department, another topic within the company. And mm -hmm. I went on for one, two years and I changed again, or I took a sabbatical or I did this or that. But in the end, I would say the last one, two years, it really started increasing and it becomes something very regular. Mm -hmm. Were you single at the time? I was with someone that is now my wife. Did she reflect to you on the change in your demeanor? Did this come home with you or was it just something you felt during the week? Well, she noticed, obviously, and we talked about it. And at some point, I think she realized that I didn't feel well mentally and, and even physically about my job. So what did you do? What did I do? That's a good question. At some point, I really was at this moment when I looked out of the window, it was sunny outside and it was the darkened windows. And I was wondering what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Is this it? What I'm going to stay for the next 20 years or not? And I decided no. So I asked to have an internal coach. Luckily, they had this kind of program where they had internal coaches within the company. I also at some point took an external coach. And with this internal coach, because I knew her, I actually said when we had the first session, look i've changed two three times within the company it doesn't really seem to stick or to fit i would like to have an open discussion if i'm in the right company and she was open to that so we started a little bit elaborating and quite quickly turned out that that was not the right place for me at least not at that moment other than the things that you were feeling inside how did the coach help you pull out the understanding that this was not the right company well, I mean, we talked a lot about obviously a little bit what I've done in the past, what interested me, what motivates me, okay, what are my values, what is important to me, these kind of things. And quite honestly, then you quite quickly realize, for example, that I'm somebody who likes freedom quite a lot, who likes discovery and learning new things quite a lot. And of course, in a very structured, big corporate, that's usually less possible. I like a very open communication style, for example, I'm quite direct. 
Maybe that's my German heritage. I'm not sure, but of course it did not always hit the right tone within the company, I suppose. So there are a couple of things that allowed me to see that I was not in the right place. And maybe the biggest point was that I figured out I like much more to work on people or with people rather than working on Excel spreadsheets or products or what it is. So maybe the one key takeaway is, for example, for me that I like to work with people rather than with things, because I've been working in politics, European studies, I've been working in renewable energies, I've been working in compliance. I think these are all very important areas. But I mean, you can have the technology to use renewable energies, but you can still use fuel or nuclear energy instead. You can have a compliance policy and people not applying it. So in the end, I realized very much it's about the person and not about the products or policies that you have and I wanted to work with the people because that is the one thing that stick out of all of my experiences in the past is, is always the connection to the people no okay. matter if I was in China or if I was in France or if I was in Germany it's really the thing when I was with the people there was my biggest and strongest memories and usually it's the feedback that I got from other people interesting so you came to the realization that this job was not a good fit for you what happened then I tried to figure out okay I want to leave what are possible ways to leave? Of course, you can quit and so on. And we had this sort of kind of discussions and the company said, okay, it's not a problem. You can leave. It was end of November of 2015. And so they had spoken with my head of department and said, yeah, okay, you can leave, but you have to leave before the end of the year, because the next year in the January, they had social elections and that they were afraid that I would put myself on the list or something like that. And so I said, if you want to leave, you have to leave now, I said, but I still have holidays. I have overtime, you know, that exists in Europe. You have overtime and you have holidays. We still have to take them. And, and so I had to leave. We discussed at home. And I think we decided on the 5th of December. I think my last working day was the 13th of December. It was, it was so quick. They couldn't even prepare the contracts. So I left officially on holiday and I went in again into the company to sign my contract on the 23rd of December. And that was the moment when I could send an email to all the people that I knew after seven and a half years telling them, oh, by the way, you won't see me again. The 18th of December was my last day. Wish you all the best. Wow. 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 That's unceremonious. Yeah. Yeah. It's very funny how sometimes things accumulate into one moment right. or in one, one week or one month. Yeah. Right. Right. So interestingly though, you already had a holiday planned. Tell me about that. Yes. Yeah. I had a friend who was also into personal development and he had done a Vipassana retreat a couple of years ago. So I had looked it up a couple of months earlier. And I had booked a 10-day Vipassana retreat. Vipassana retreat is actually a silent retreat. It's built on Buddhistic traditions. You go to a place, you give away your smartphone. You're not allowed to read. You're not allowed to have anything to write. The basic idea is you go there, you sleep, you get up early in the morning, 4 o'clock, to start meditating at 4.30 or 5. And you meditate more or less the whole day with some breaks. So you eat, sleep, and meditate and walk maybe a little bit in the park. And you don't speak to anybody. You're not allowed to have eye contact with people. You you can have lunch watching at the wall if you want. There are tables that directly face the wall. No eye contact. Yeah, because it's a way of communication, you know. So usually people walk around like this, staring at the floor most of the time, at least. Wow. Tell me what about you at that time in your life made this feel like, because you booked this before you left your job. So what made that feel like the right thing for you as you were working in compliance at this financial bank and... Yeah, I think I needed to reconnect to myself. That's one thing. And, you know, usually when you're at home and then there's your wife or your friend or you have the television, you have the smartphone, you scroll around Facebook or whatever you do, Instagram nowadays or TikTok, you know, there's always distraction. And I really felt like after 
Well, I didn't know before, but after the turmoil and everything going on that I needed to close the outer world out, shut it out and concentrate on myself and take time for myself and see what happens. Was that the first time you had ever done a silent retreat? Yes, that was the first time. Yeah. Was it difficult? Quite honestly, it's very funny. When I talk with people about it, they always, wow, 10 days, no talking? Sounds horrendous. For me, the 10 days of no talking or nine and a half, it's very easy. It's not a problem to be silent because I don't know the people anyway that come there. I mean, I could talk to them in theory, but I have no interest. So the silent part for me is never a problem. But you will realize when you do this and you have no way to distract yourself because you're not talking, you have no television, you have no phone, how much crap you have going through your head all the time, all the thoughts, thousands of voices talking to you. And you can see how day after day of not talking to anybody, of having no input, how things calm down and your mind calms down because there's nothing else you can do. You're, you're breathing. Literally, you do breathing all the time. That's the only thing you do. And so you realize after 10 days, do you really feel Zen? Quite honestly, I would recommend it to nearly everybody who is mentally okay to do it, to once in his or her lifetime do this, because I do believe you cannot go into a silent retreat and come out of it the same person. Wow. Because no one ever in his life has spent 10 days with themselves and only with themselves. Right. It does sound frightening a little bit. Unsettling, I think. Yeah. I think some people usually leave. Of course, two, three people usually leave because right. they cannot handle it. But I think it's a very intense and healthy exercise. And did you say no writing? No, no writing, no meditation, no yoga, no sports, no mobile phones, no reading, no distraction. Oh. I would just think doing that, I would want to journal and get all the stuff in my brain out. That's interesting that there's no capturing of any of that experience. No, no. It's being with the experience. Yeah, that's very Zen. <laughs> Hi, we'll get back to the conversation in just a minute. This is where I usually interrupt to ask you to look down at your phone and either rate or share the podcast. And please do that. But today, I want to tell you about a two-page guide I created that's going to help you diagnose whether you or someone you love is suffering from the ick. It's not always clear-cut, so this guide outlines some of the symptoms and red flags associated with that icky feeling. You can download it from my website, 40drinks.com slash ick. Spell out the word 40, so that's 40drinks.com slash I-C-K. All right. Back to Sasha, who talks about how he felt when he came back into the world after 10 days of silence. So you came out a different person. Who were you? How were you different when you came out? Yeah, maybe I'm not a different person, but it's very turbulent moments where you leave a company after seven and a half years from one day to another, more or less without having a plan A, B, C whatsoever. And maybe you're scared, you're uncertain. I think it did me very well, you know, because you have this thousand thoughts running to your head. You have your fear, you have anguish towards what happened in the past and everything. And so I think it did me very well to participate. And it made me feel very calm when I came outside. Of course, then the normal world comes back. And after a couple of weeks, you had this chicken again. But at that moment, it was good. And I could always reconnect because I knew I had made the experience. I knew what I needed sometimes was quietness, was getting out of things, taking a step back. And so in that sense, it helped me a lot. As I said, it was towards the end of the year. So uh, I left the company on the 23rd. We went to see my family for Christmas. And on the 26th, I went into the retreat until the 6th of January. So I spent New Year's Day getting up at 4, 4.30 to start meditating when other people went to bed after partying. <laughs> and I came out on the 6th of January 
And on the 8th of January is my birthday. And on the 8th of January 2016, I turned 40. Wow. So it all came boiled down to this one month, more or less, of or, or two weeks or three weeks of extreme change. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. The other thing you said was that when you left this job, you didn't really have a clear picture of what your future looked like or what you were going to do after you left. Yeah, I mean, as I said, when I realized at some point that I like to work with people, but I had no background, I'm not an HR person, I was no coach, had no psychology studies whatsoever. So in the beginning, I was, you know, like everybody, I went on YouTube, I watched people, I looked videos, then I started to look up who in my network does something similar, I was reaching out to people, do you know somebody who does this, would that be an option, I started having conversations, and so on, and which was possible, to be quite honest, because my wife was working, and she supported that. And so at some point, I figured out, okay, for myself, I wanted something concrete. So I started a coaching training with a recognized company that was certified by the International Coach Federation and so on, because I wanted to show that I invested myself. I mean, mm -hmm. People have always been interesting to me, but I wanted to have something concrete and specific. So that was the first step. And it took some time. When you came out of your retreat and you were contemplating your next steps, did you know right then that you wanted to be a coach? Was that something that had always been in your mind? No, it has not always been on my mind. For a long time, I didn't even know what a coach does. And it was my first idea because I came across it at some point because I had coaches myself. And I thought, okay, that looks interesting. And I've always had a high interest in people. This is why I like to travel. This is why I like to learn languages. This is why my best memories is of experiences with people and why I usually had good relationships with people. And they opened up and they told me stories maybe they wouldn't have told other people. But it was not that it was clear. It was more like carving out of a stone. And I'm still carving. I'm still working on it. It's not like the job is done. And I have evolved over the last five years in what I'm doing and how I'm doing the things. Mm. So one of the reasons I was drawn to talk to you was when I read your bio, you had some real big picture worldview kind of things that you were reflecting on. And one of the statements that I loved was in order to be healthy as an individual, you have to become conscious. Can you talk to me about your journey to consciousness? Sure. It's still going on. Of course, of course. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, no, you know, we get stuff when we are children. So you adopt certain strategies, you adopt a certain behavior, certain values, whatever. And most people run on autopilot, including myself, most of their life. And I think in order to act differently and to do what is good for you, you have to become conscious about the choices that you make, the decisions that you take, the things that are important to you. I think that's a big part about learning about yourself of these structuring yourself of making the subconscious conscious because otherwise you're going into the same traps over and over again because you're always on an autopilot and you're reacting you know you're mm -hmm. a reactor not a creator of your life mm. things happen to you all the time and so this is why awareness or consciousness is so important do you feel like because this is one of the things that i'm so curious about and really a lot of these conversations is about is in our 20s and early 30s or sometimes all the way through our 30s and into our 40s if you're me you are not conscious of the patterns and the choices do you feel like this was something that dawned on you or that became more obvious to you through your 30s and into your 40s or were you always conscious were you a conscious kid were you a conscious young adult or was this something that came to you during this decade of sometime around 30 to 40. Quite honestly, I think I was a conscious kid and a conscious young adult. 
the thing is, I think it was very conscious at the time, but I wasn't aware that I was conscious because it was, it was natural because you're a child, you're always doing these things very naturally without knowing. And I think then what happens is that society hits, your education hits, and you're doing what everybody else does. This is what happened with me. I started working in an insurance company, and then I felt like that's not the right thing. And I went into European studies, and then I went into renewable energies, and that felt more or less okay. But then, okay, I wanted to make more money, and because I saw my friends making a career. And so you, at some point, maybe when you're a child, you're unconsciously conscious. You just do the things that you do, but you don't know why you're doing them. And I think when you start going for personal development and discovering yourself, you're trying to make, to reconsciousize the, the consciousness or the unconscious that you had before, maybe as a child, because as a child, you didn't, you didn't wonder, you just did. Right. But if you're unconsciously conscious, or if you're not aware that you're conscious, are you really conscious? You know what I mean? Oof, that's a philosophical question. Yes, I know. No, I know. Maybe yeah. it's it's not the right words. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's not the right words, but it's like, it's a little bit like with learning, you know, that I'm not sure you're aware. There are the five levels of knowledge of learning. You're unconsciously unknowing. Okay. This is when you're a child. So if I take the example of driving a car for a young child, driving a car, they don't know they're not able to drive. Okay. They see dad doing this or mom doing this. And they think, okay, that's an easy thing. I can do this as well. Okay. When they grow older, they become consciously unknowing. Okay. They can see that it's complex and they don't know. Then you go to driving school and you learn how to drive. Then you become knowledgeable. But at the beginning, you're like steering, changing the gear, watching in the back mirror and everything. You have to do it very attentively and consciously in order to not create an accident. And then after some years of driving, you drive home and you don't even know how you got there. Okay. But the fifth stage is then if you want to teach somebody how to drive. Now you have kids and you want to teach them how to drive. Everything that you have automated. You have to make it reconscious again. You have to con make it conscious again in order to explain them how it works. Because we, for you, it has become so natural that you don't remember. And I think in that sense, maybe it's a little bit the same, just the other way around. As a kid, you you know it, but you don't know that you know it. Maybe. Right. And so at some point when you're older, in your 30s and 40s, you find ways back to go through all the layers that were put on you of what you have to do and how you have to do it and what you need to have, etc. It's interesting. I like that example for a couple of reasons. A number of people that I've talked to have talked about their transitions in this period of time. They've gone back to things that they loved as a child, or they've gone back to things that they thought they had to leave behind because they were childish. So that really works within your analogy. And I think as I put my own sort of thought process on top of what you're saying, and it's interesting, you were talking about in your early 20s and you went into insurance and then you, and then you moved on to European studies, it, you get into that routine of being an adult and it's almost like you get on the conveyor belt and you just head down and you just, you know, go, go, go without really thinking about some of the bigger picture pieces. And I wonder if after you've been doing that for a while, you start like you did, you start to realize that inside you're not feeling joyful and you're not feeling fulfilled. And, and so that's when you pick your head up and kind of wonder is, is this it? So I think that, that kind of fits in with your example. Yeah, I think some people do. I don't know if they are lucky, like me and you, who started the 40s maybe rethinking things and changing direction. Mm -hmm. And other people don't. They think they might think they don't have the means to do so, or they don't mm -hmm. have the introspection to do so, or they think that that's life, you know. My parents, for example, I mean, life was different then, but I think they never had thought about 
okay, what makes me happy? You know, they had a job and they had a family to support and that's it. So it's also a question of means and of possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. One of the other things you said in your bio, and I, I like this one because this is one I think about a lot. And especially within these conversations is only if you are aware that you have a problem, can you start solving it? And, and that really is the crux of these conversations of people becoming aware that there's an issue with their existence, that they're not fulfilled or they're not happy or they're not joyful and how to become aware of that. And then how to first, it's such a big situation. It's, it's overwhelming to even think about how to change it. Were you overwhelmed mm -hmm. when you thought of leaving this stable, steady job to go out into the great unknown? Of course. Of course, I was afraid because you don't know what comes next. If you have been seven and a half years in a job that pays your life quite okay and you have no plan and so there's nothing prepared. Yeah, of course I was scared. Yeah. yeah I probably had only dared it because I knew that my wife had my back in a certain way. I'm not sure right. I would have done it if I would have been by myself. I'm not sure. I cannot say. Interesting. Interesting. For me, I wasn't single. I had a boyfriend, but it was a very bad relationship that was crumbling at the same time. But because I was single and unmarried, I thought it was almost easier to walk away from the steady and the stable because there weren't other responsibilities that required that great paycheck or the, the benefits or things like that. Interesting. Yeah, good point. Sasha, tell me what you have evolved into. What do you do now? You've become a coach and talk a little bit about what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm still coaching. I'm doing it less, quite honestly, but I'm still coaching people individually. For example, this is also a process, as I said, I'm giving more trainings now. I like to give trainings or speak, but mainly I'm doing trainings in corporates, but not only on personal development, but on communication, for example, because communication for me is a key that you need to know how to give feedback, how to receive back feedback, how to speak, how to communicate with your others on leadership, this kind of things. Because I would like to have people be more happy in their jobs. And of mm -hmm. course, I think it has a lot to do with how we communicate and how the leaders or the management is working and this kind of things. Mm -hmm. And also I realized, for example, I love one-to-one -one coachings because they can go very deep, but I love the energy of being in a group, being in front of a group and animating a group. I'm talking too much sometimes for being a good coach, I think. <laughs> That's funny. But I love that you're able to do both things that are fulfilling to you. You've created a situation where you can be one-on-one -on -one and go deep and, and really get gooey and messy with people. And then you also have the balance of getting that energy of being out in front of people and speaking to a group and feeling like you're having a broader impact. That's wonderful that you've been able to create that. Yeah. And so that's the path I'm on and I'm still working on it. There's always a next step, obviously. It's sometimes it's like everything. Sometimes it's fascinating. It's not like I'm getting up every day. Yeah. Cheerful and happy. And there are days that are good and days that are less good. But right. overall, I have to say what I'm doing fulfills me much more than what I have done in the past. Wonderful. That's the ultimate goal. Good. Well, Sasha, I just wanted to say thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing your story. I think it's been an interesting, I never knew I was going to get philosophical with a German. That was a scary place to be for me because I'm not particularly <laughs> philosophical, but you, you handled me very nicely. So thank you for being kind. <laughs> thank you very much, Stephanie. It was such a pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much for listening today. I'm not really sure what else I can say about my conversation with Sasha. I mean, one of my greatest strengths is talking. So how is it that I could comprehend being silent for 10 whole days? <laughs>
It does remind me of episode 35, though, where I spoke with Tina Bakehouse, who also endured a period of silence in her late 30s. Because of a vocal injury, she had to do six weeks of silence. And one of the things Tina realized during her quiet time was, the thing about silence is when your mouth isn't making noise, your brain starts to fill that space with its own noise. And similarly, in silence, Sasha quickly realized how much crap went through his head every day. He said it felt like thousands of voices talking all the time. But after a few days of not talking and having no other inputs, his mind finally calmed down. And Tina called her time a period of isolation, listening, and seeing. So again, that reduction of the external input helped her really carve out some space to do that listening and seeing. And the same thing for Sasha. You know, as I have these conversations and hear about the things that people have done to find themselves and return to themselves, there are things that I think about trying for myself, but I can pretty much promise you that 10 days of not talking is probably not going to be one of them. Okay, next week you're going to meet Paula Conroy, who is an ex-banker turned entrepreneur who talks about recognizing what she called the internal aridity she felt in the banking culture and then the courage it took to walk away from a seemingly glossy career, which included dismantling both her ego and her identity in order to embark upon a journey that she felt was really much more her own. I hope you'll join me. I'll see you next week. The 40 Drinks Podcast is produced and presented by Savoy Fair Marketing Communications. 